How does working with youth become a passion? What is a residential care parent? What is a court-approved special advocate, also known as a CASA? And finally, how does a nine-year-old boy light a fire within to make one follow his dream of becoming a doctor? Today on Talking Missions of Men's Student Life, I interview Kyle, a first-year medical student here at the University of Utah School of Medicine. Helping you prepare for one of the most rewarding careers in the world. This is Talking Admissions and Med Student Life with your host, the Dean of Admissions at the University of Utah School of Medicine, Dr. Benjamin Chan. Well, I've got another great guest this morning on Talking Admissions and Med Student Life, Kyle, who uh, is an incoming first-year student. Good morning, Kyle. Good morning. Well, Kyle, let's just uh, let's start off with probably the easiest, most basic question. How did you decide to become a doctor? You said that was an easy question? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I think, you know, I always wanted to be a doctor. Mm-hmm. I didn't always think I could be a doctor. But there was a moment in my undergrad a couple years ago, actually, where I was meeting with a youth doing some volunteer work. And he told me he wanted to be a doctor. And it was a bizarre moment because he started listing reasons that he could not do it. Mm. And so, you know, for me, I think part of my surprise was that this nine-year-old had so many, I'd say, objects in his path. And at nine, you know, you should be, I think, a little more open to Mm -hmm. possibility. So uh, that was surprising. The other surprising thing is that he sounded a lot like me. You know, those were my obstacles. And so I think it became easy after that to think, you know, maybe... If I can overcome these obstacles, maybe I can actually help others do the same. And it became like a a test almost. Can I do this? But the desire to be a doctor was always there. It's just, you know, can it it happen? Mm -hmm. And so... I know there's a lot of people out there who are listening to this podcast, Kyle, who, when you say obstacles or objects in their path, they automatically think of their own. I mean, what advice would you give them to overcome these? Well, they're only as real as you make them. I mean, for me, it was a lot of misconception. I mean, the things that I thought were getting in my way were easily overcome if I could find the right people to help me. And so I was worried about my grades a lot. Um, I wasn't the best student, but I found a mentor, and I learned how to be a good student. I was worried that, you know, medical school was for very wealthy people that I was not invited to that party, Mm. and I was wrong. But I had to get to know medical students and doctors to know that, you know, that is a misconception. Um, And those were my two biggest. I was like, I don't have the money to do this, and I might not have the grades to do this. Mm. So, So, I mean, Kyle, I think that probably resonates with a lot of individuals. Um, You know, the standards are high, you know. Yeah. uh, we have we have thresholds for our MCAT and our GPA. Yeah. But I like how you said, like a mentor, a way to approach yes. studying. And, uh, you know, I think it takes a lot of practice. I think, you know, learning how to take tests and being a good student, there's a lot of work that goes into it. But I, I, I think it's doable for everyone. I so, do, too. Yeah. So, I mean, I you know, I think I get the sense you went back to school later in life. I did, yeah. How was that, as, a, as I would call it, a non-traditional student as a, as a going back to school? It was better for me. You know, my first shot at college, I was on an athletic scholarship and I was there to play. Hmm. And uh, I didn't view college as a way to, you know, become a better person, 
to advance my career. It was a place to go have fun and enjoy being young. And then, you know, life will catch up with you and you just live life. After I started working and got into the world and realized that, you know, the more education you have, the more impact you can have to help others. Mm -hmm. I thought, I need it. I need it. If I'm going to make an impact, I have to get an education. And so coming back was, you know, the beginning of me just trying to change who I was and and hope that I could help others along the way. Mm-hmm. And Kyle, I, m- I remember very clearly uh, when your application came up to the missions committee, <laughs> they really saw that within you because this drive to improve yourself as well as the same time improving others yeah. came across very loudly and clearly. And you mentioned earlier helping out a youth. I think that's your passion, correct? It is, yeah. Where does that come from? Where does that originate from? Uh, you know, my childhood was unique in that I had to live with multiple families. Mm-hmm. And there are times during that process where you really begin to question Yourself, You become very introspective. You know, why am I moving around a lot? Is it something that has to do with my personality? And it becomes very challenging and very sad at times. And so I kind of got to see that side of it. Now, at the same time, I had very positive experiences. I had an older brother who took care of me for as long as he could. As long as he was with me, you know, he supported me. He loved me. And so I got to see the dark and the light. And so I recognized at an early age the impact of just positive people. And I I decided that's what I wanted to do is take people who are in those dark moments. And even if it's just five minutes, try to give them five minutes of happiness and, and light that they know somebody cares about them. That was my passion. And so it was as simple as that. I wanted to help people feel happy. Mm -hmm. And so it started in detention centers. At 17, I started volunteering at detention centers. You know, people who are often forgotten. And we taught them to play basketball. A lot of them were better than I was, by the way. (laughs) And I was, here I thought I was a superstar. And, you know, these kids who are have lost their freedom because of poor decisions, Mm -hmm. had more talent than I did a lot of times. And so that was interesting. But it kind of just progressed from there. Mm -hmm. That's where it started, though. I mean, that's beautiful, Kyle. I love how you describe that. I mean, I think when you say detention center, Mm -hmm. um, you know, a lot of people don't have experience with that. And, you know, I would make the argument, because I'm a child psychiatrist, so I kind of approach this from a a child psychiatry lens, is that those teenagers are not so different than you and I or anyone else that we know, um, yeah, they made poor decisions, but a lot of times there's stuff going on in the background with their yeah. families, and that it's just fascinating to me that when you put a teenager or a child in a structured setting, <laughs> um, all that you know bad stuff usually melts away, and they're still just kids at heart. It's so true. Yeah. Um, and I mean, did you see that on your end? Yeah. So yeah. I worked in residential care, mm-hmm. and it's hard to describe that the effect that environment has and it is so common we would get kids that had lived in multiple homes and failed but with a little bit of structure and with them learning to believe that somebody cared about them they would turn it around Mm -hmm. we had a lot of success in residential care but um yeah everything you said i 
totally support. Yeah. It's so true. So be, being in residential care, were you like uh, were you like the professional? Were you the dad? I guess you could say. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So how would that work? How's that? Because a lot of people aren't familiar with the system. So how is that set up? Well, you're dealing with youth, or I say you are. I was dealing with youth who were um, at a higher level of care, mm-hmm. and so they were most either on their way out of detention centers and they were hoping to go back to foster care or their behaviors were escalating and they were failing in foster care and proctor care and treatment foster care. And so significant negative behaviors. So the home was very structured. We used the teaching family model Mm -hmm. to motivate positive behavior. But the alarms were, there were alarms on doors, on Mm -hmm. windows, you know, it was pretty secure. So my wife and I were the parents. And so we were there except for 16 hours a week. We were in the home with these, mm-hmm. with these kids. And how many are you talking about? We had eight. Wow. So sometimes there were less. And what ages? So for the, the majority of it, we did uh, five years with teenage boys. Mm-hmm. So 13 to 18. Okay. And we loved it. For a year, we did girls. Girls were harder. <laughs> <laughs> Why? Why? Oh, man. I don't know. Okay. I could never figure it out. So we did five years with boys and one year with girls. Mm-hmm. And that was enough for me. <laughs> okay. All right. So oh, can you talk a little bit more about this model, the teaching model? The teaching family model is amazing. Um, it started many years ago with there was this swing where residential care was becoming more common. And a lot of them were failing. And this group in North Carolina found one that was succeeding, and they studied it. And they started implementing some of the skills they saw. But it uses the social learning theory. And you model, you practice, and you use a lot of positive praise Mm -hmm. to try to change behaviors. And so, you know, you take somebody who is very sensitive, and maybe a teacher tells them they need to turn in an assignment. And instead of either not doing it or doing it, like most of us would, you know, they decide to throw a book at the teacher. You know, they have this extreme reaction. And so we would get them and we would focus on a very small part of that behavior, just following instructions. And so we would expect them to do steps, look at the person, say, okay, do the task and check back. And it was that simple. And by focusing on those smaller steps, a lot of times you never got to the severe behavior. And you use a lot of positive praise throughout it. And so if you see somebody struggling, but they they looked at you, maybe they didn't do what you asked, you would tell them they did a good job looking. I love that, Kyle. There's a phrase uh, in psychology, uh, child psychology, that we use a lot, uh, catch them being good. Yeah. We use that a lot. And uh, a lot of times, like, kids, you know, they do something bad, and then you then they get your attention and you yeah. like yell at them or you punish them or something like that. Yeah. And what we really focus on is trying to catch them being good. Try to catch them doing something really well and then like you said just give them a lot of praise. Build on it. And um, you know, it's it's fascinating because kids like that's like almost oxygen to kids. They yeah. love praise. And like adults sometimes struggle with figuring that out. Yeah. You know, they think kids want toys and and material goods. And, yeah, kids do to a certain extent. They want those things. <laughs> Don't we all? But they love the positive attention. They love um, 
of just being told you're doing a great job. And like, I think when we think back to our own childhood, it's like when someone, like I just remember beaming when I was told, like, oh, you know, that great job, Ben. And like, yes. I, I, like someone was noticing when I was not even sure they were paying attention. And it just feels so good. So it's me, I call that like childhood oxygen, like praise. That's so, amazing. Is it weird that you're asking me questions on stuff that you're the expert on? <laughs> like, should I be asking you questions? So, Kyle, I, I, I'm a child psychiatrist, but I never uh, was uh, a dad. Um, within uh, a residential treatment facility. So I think you have a lot of awesome, Something tells awesome me you experience. could do it. If you wanted to, you could, you'd nail it. All right, it. so you have eight boys. How long did they stay on average? The longest we had was two months. Okay. The shortest was five. Okay, so a lot of turnover. Yeah. A lot of turnover. Yeah. And how was that on you? I mean, was that hard? Because obviously you would get attached to some of these kids. So hard. Yeah. Harder some sometimes mm-hmm. than others. You know, there were some kids that we were okay when it was time for them to go. But, you know, the ones who made a lot of progress, it was really difficult to send them back into whatever environment had led them to us. Mm -hmm. And we were apprehensive a lot of times, but really just sad. Mm -hmm. I mean, we loved these kids. We loved them. We wanted them to be happy and healthy. And, you know, we liked them being around us and Mm -hmm. we liked having them in our home. So Mm -hmm. it was hard to let them go. Yeah. Do you still, I mean, are you allowed to stay in touch with them? I mean, do you get updates about if, how they're doing? Or how's that, how's that set up? If they would like it, we're allowed to kind of continue the relationship, but we don't instigate. Okay. And so there's been a lot who have contacted us afterwards, and we'll go ahead and, you know, keep up with them and, okay. and meet with them and talk with them. And, That's wonderful. Oh, love it. Yeah. love it. So, Kyle, going back to, like, you, you helping out, especially with youth, um, mm-hmm. you know, you also... I read in your application you did something called a court-appointed special oh, advocate. Yeah. What, yeah. What's that about? What's that? How would you get involved in that, first of all? So the story I told you about the the nine-year-old, mm-hmm. that's while I was doing it. They call it CASA. Mm-hmm. But it is, it's kind of like a mentoring program in a way. A lot of people who are going into law school do it. But it is, it's a program that puts people in the home to find information for lawyers, basically. And Mm so um, guardian ad litems, child lawyers, Mm -hmm. are, you know, overworked, which is probably not too surprising. They have a a high caseload. And so, you know, they get a case and it's concerning, but they don't have the time to go and visit with this person. So they'll get a volunteer to go do a form. And so my role when I went into a home was to establish a relationship with whoever the, the youth was and you know, help provide them with services where I could. But really, it was to make sure their environment was safe, to make sure if parents had um, court responsibilities that they were following through with those, and then to report back to the, the guardian ad litem and mm-hmm. so that he could represent them in court. Would you, as a, a CASA, an advocate, would you have to testify in court or appear in court in any way? or? I never had to. It's possible. And a lot of other states, the the CASA represents the youth in court. Hmm. So the CASA is kind of like a lawyer. But in Utah, I mean, for at least the time I was there, I I filled out a lot of court reports, and that was sufficient. So I never never appeared. Mm -hmm. And so how long did you do that for? Almost two years. Okay, okay. And would you see, I mean, would you go back in and, like, work with, specific youth or is more of a kind of a one-time thing like an evaluation or you would have the same youth throughout okay all right so you were kind of there helping yeah. out yes okay. yeah um and then 
you know, you're working with youth, you're, um, you're mentoring, you're, have, you're, you know, a professional parent, you're doing all these different experiences. Mm-hmm. And is that when, you know, you talk about that nine-year-old, is that when you really decide, like, hey, I'm going to go for medical school? Like, I yes. mean, just help me understand that because it's kind of a fascinating journey. Well, again, I always wanted to do it. Okay. You know, let's call it my secret. I secretly wanted to be a doctor. Mm-hmm. And I had seen the impact that doctors had. In my life, you know, it's amazing. You go into this office as a child, and all of a sudden your parents are asking them questions. You know, these people that know everything are all of a sudden asking questions. And, you know, you get left with this individual. Whether or not your parents tell you not to talk to strangers, this guy's the exception. I can trust this guy. And it has a strong impact. Then you pair that with their knowledge. They actually know how to help. A lot of times, they can really help you. That is, it was just mind-blowing to me as a kid. I wanted that. Okay. And so, you know, as I grew up, you know, life happens. And you you kind of put aside what you want to do for at least for what I thought was more realistic. And so I just, I did the best I could. I knew I wanted to help people. And so I found those opportunities. And then, you know, talking to that youth uh, through the CASA program, I, it lit a fire. Mm -hmm. Somebody has to be able to break through these barriers, whether they're illusions or not. It's obviously real to more than just me. And I wanted to be the one to do it. I wanted to be able to go back to this young man and any other youth who are in foster care or, you know, don't have that family support and say, you know, you can do what you want to do. You just need to find the right people to make it happen. And so it was at that moment when I found my mentor that I was telling you about. And he was um, he was an undergrad with me. I was lucky. I had already returned to school. I was going to get a degree. That was going to happen. It just wasn't going to lead me to medical school. I I was thinking about doing social work. Mm-hmm. And uh, I lived in the married student housing. And I was surrounded by medical students and pre-medical students. And now you're one of them. <laughs> oh, man. That's wild. That is wild. Yeah. But he was similar to me. He was older. He had a lot of kids. Mm-hmm. The only difference is that he was a straight A student. He was really smart. Mm. But I told him what I wanted to do. He was the first person that I admitted to wanting to be a doctor. He's the first one that knew the secret. He knew the secret. And he supported me. His wife planned out my schedule, all my classes. She's a bright lady too. Mm -hmm. And we talked about what, what I was missing and we just started. Mm -hmm. So I took a class with him the next semester and that's when I learned how to study. So I owe him, you know, a lot. You know, I owe him a lot. I'll owe this school a lot for my medical degree, but I owe him a lot for getting me in. That's beautiful. That's yeah. that's wonderful, Kyle. Well, we have a few minutes left. Um, okay. Let's talk about some fun stuff. Okay. You, um, with your experience, because you've worked with teenagers yeah. almost all your life, yeah. the sounds of it. Plus, you have your own teenagers mm-hmm. in the house now, too, right? So yeah. let's talk about some tips you can give some parents out there. Because Okay. Um, so let's, let's tackle the first one, cell phones. Okay. <laughs> How old should someone be before they get a cell phone, and what kind of rules would you or or guidelines would you give to cell phone use for teenagers? I think that I mean the way I did it with my daughter is as soon as I was worried about where she was, she got a cell phone because you can track cell phones. Yes, you can. And so I think she was just starting uh, high school, so a couple years ago. But 
you have to establish right off that trust is not given, it's earned. Correct. And so before she got the phone, I told her at any moment, if I ask for her phone, she will hand me her phone. And if there's ever a delay, Mm -hmm. she doesn't get a phone anymore. And, you know, I told her, I'm going to look at your pictures. Mm -hmm. I'm going to check your phone. I'm going to check your text. Technically your phone, right? Yes, it's my phone. Your daughter, teenagers. She's borrowing it from me. Yeah, they don't pay for their cell phone plans. They're on their parents. And I'm happy to have, I'm happy to give her cell phone. Mm -hmm. That's what she wants it. She likes it. But, you know, she's going to have to constantly earn it. Mm -hmm. Constantly. Do you have her check in her cell phone at night? Or do you let her have it overnight? I don't have her check it in at night, but, you know, we are very involved. You know, if even if I'm not available, my wife is. And so, you know, there's a lot of check-ins for all our kids mm-hmm. at night. And, you know, she, we got lucky with the first one. She is an amazing kid. The second one, we might be in trouble and we might have to alter our mm-hmm. plans a little bit. But number one is good. Yeah. When I talk to parents sometimes, because cell phones kind of seem to be at the forefront. You know, okay. We didn't have cell phones when I was growing up. Not an issue. Yeah, not an issue. I just still remember. I think we all remember. Those of you who are a certain age out there remember. Like you had one family home line. That's it. Landline. And I still, you know, I'm talking to my friends. I'm in high school. And then someone else picks up on the other line. And they don't <laughs> listen. And they start dialing. And then you do that, Mom, I'm on the phone. You know, <laughs> I, I think, like, we all remember that being called out through the house. So but true. for some parents, they tell me that, uh, like, you know, like, they're, they're teenagers. Um, God bless them. Uh, they do a really great job. But, like, at night, yeah. um, you know, they, they're texting and playing video games. And so I always tell the parents, like, if there's ever a question if they're, using their cell phone too much just have them checking in at night so because like sleep is really important for teenagers growing bodies growing minds and cell phones can be incredibly fun to play with yeah just to kind of check those in with the parents and they can charge overnight just like our bodies charge overnight cell phones need to charge overnight and they can get them back in the morning i like that that's that's like helped out some parents a lot when i've given that little tidbit i like that um another uh talking like, like issues like with homework you kind of made an allusion to it earlier so how do you set up homework i mean how do you help your teenager like follow through on their assignments and you know you can talk about your own family or what you've seen at, at, at the residential facility kyle so again i got lucky you know my my oldest is really good at doing homework but i got to work with a lot of students who weren't mm-hmm. you know in the group home and so what we did was we set up a time to do homework and they were going to sit at the table during that time, you know, no matter what. And even if at first they would refuse to do homework, you know, after after 15 minutes or so of sitting at the table, they would much rather have a book in front of them. <laughs> and so <laughs> yes. I think it's important that, you know, whether or not they even have homework, that you have time set aside for learning, for studying. And, you know, they're not going to put that in their own schedule. It's not exciting to them. But we know it's important. And so, you know, you just put it in their, their schedule. Here's, here's a time when we, get, we do homework. And it doesn't have to be a negative thing. I mean, even when I'm saying it, it sounds like, you know, sit at this table. Or you're going to get in trouble. That's not how it is. It's we're sitting at the table together. We're doing this together. If you need help, I'm right here. Mm-hmm. You know, let's have some, some carrots. Let's, let's, let's have some fun. You know, you've done your homework for four days in a row. It's Friday. Let's turn on some music. You know, there are ways to make it enjoyable, mm-hmm. but you have to have that structure. They need to know from you that it's important. Yeah. 
That, that's excellent, Kyle. That's, that's perfect. And then the last one I wanted to talk about um, was oh, money. Um, you know, when I was growing up, uh, you know, like I clearly had an allowance, and it was based on chores. Mm-hmm. Is that is that still is that part of the the teaching model, or what would yes. you say to that? Because I know because teenagers they want things, which is very normal. And so, yeah. how do they get the means uh, to get those things? So every privilege has to be earned, and money is one of those privileges. And again, this is not meant in a negative way. This is an opportunity to point out when someone is doing well. Mm-hmm. And, you know, allowance is an easy way to do that. You know, you follow this checklist of chores that you have to do, and here's this reward that you're going to get. And if it's motivating to them, it's positive. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you can utilize it. It's a tool, really. But, you know, kids... They should have opportunities to earn money, and um, it should be just one of those moments as parents that we get to do something they like Mm -hmm. for them doing something we like. We like them cleaning our house, so, you know, let's give them something they like. They like our money. I remember with my siblings, we had, like, this little... Little, like little org chart, chore chart, uh-huh. and we would rotate chores, and there was clearly chores that we didn't like doing. There was yes. chores which were considered easier. Yeah. Um, and yeah, it was just I just remember that very clearly growing up. Um, how much is allowance nowadays? I'm very has inflation kept up? Like, because remember, like back in the day, it was like a dollar or two a week. Apparently, that's laughably too low nowadays. So, so late. So for the past year, I've been actually going into families' homes and teaching parenting skills, uh-huh. and I have seen. A large increase in allowance. Like, I don't know. The numbers when I was a kid, they were like a dollar. Yeah. And now I'm seeing like $20. You remember as a kid that like the $20 bill was like, oh. Yeah, you didn't see it. I was like, wow, that's a $20 bill. It was like, and like you can buy so much candy with that. Yeah. So, but yeah, it's changed. I remember like, like growing up, like I would mow lawns, you know, and it used to be like five to 10 bucks to mow someone's lawn. Again, yeah. I think inflation has taken over. Because I think I you're think, right. I don't think I can find a, a teenager in my neighborhood to like mow my lawn for five to ten. No, years. they're not going to do that. <laughs> their their time is worth way more than that. Yes. Apparently, yes, very much so. Well, Kyle, um, you know I'm really excited for you to start medical school. I, Me I think too. it's going to be a fantastic journey, and uh, I appreciate I'm, it. I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing you in the hall. All right. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to Talking Admissions and Med Student Life with Dr. Benjamin Chan, the ultimate resource to help you on your journey to and through medical school. A production of the Scope Health Sciences Radio, online at thescoperadio.com.